Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us for this very special program with Mary Trump. I'm Michelle Miao, host and producer of The Michelle Miao Show, and also a member of the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Club of California. If you're joining us for the very first time, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to the civic discussion of today's most important topics and issues. Any views expressed here are those of the speakers. The Commonwealth Club produces over 500 programs annually, even during a pandemic. Head on over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for more Michelle Miao Show programming or commonwealthclub.org for future programs, podcasts, videos of past events, and also the opportunity to support the work of the club. If you're joining us live on YouTube, use the chat box feature to send us your questions for our speakers. It's now my pleasure to introduce to you our speakers today. Mary Trump is a clinical psychologist with a PhD from the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at Adelphi University. Her first book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the Most Dangerous Man, was an international bestseller and provided deep insight into America's 45th president. She's here today to talk about many things, but most importantly, her second and newest book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Our moderator today is Molly Jong Fass, who is the editor-at-large at The Daily Beast and also host of the new Abnormal podcast. Let's get our program started. Enjoy the program. Let's welcome Molly and Mary. Hi, Mary. Hey, Molly. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. It's very fun to get to interview you one day after I got you sued. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, I was actually telling somebody the other day that I really wish Donald would sue me because it would help book sales. And turns out, you're the reason I got sued all along. So thank you. I mean, it's, you know, my editor uh, at the Daily Beast sent me a text. It was like, yo, Molly. And I wrote back, yeah, what's going on, Harry? And he was like, you're in this lawsuit. And I was just delighted. But then my husband, who's like an adult, was like, oh, my God, you know, oh, my, what does this mean? You know, it's having a heart attack. But uh you know, I mean, it, it is the, I think the lawyer misspelled her own name at one point in the, I'm not sure, but there were, I think she's not, she's a very kind of Trumpy lawyer. I, I think her office is in a strip mall or something. <laughs> um, but just so you're aware, uh, if I do indeed have to pay a hundred million dollars, you're going to have to pay your fair share. Just so we're clear. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I mean, I'm good for it. I mean, I have books here. I can probably sell them. Um, you, <clears throat> I'm kidding, by the way. I'm certainly not good for it. Um, but so the, I want to ask you, I have a lot of questions for you, obviously, but the biggest question is, first, let's just talk, this, this lawsuit is a state lawsuit too. It's not a federal lawsuit. And it's, it's like they, they did it in Westchester or some, not Westchester, but upstate. Dutchess County. Dutchess County, which I think is, is. Central New York. Yeah. Slightly strange. Uh, That's my uncle Rob lived there. So it is a little strange because he doesn't live there anymore. Right. (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's get to the book. The book called The Reckoning just came out and 
I want to talk to you first. I'm very proud of myself for having it, right? Because you know, often I'm very <laughs> disorganized. Um, first, I want to talk to you about the first chapter, which is like incredibly autobiographical in a way that I really appreciate. Can you talk to me about writing, talk a little bit about that first chapter and how you came to write so personally? Because I know how, I, I think we both are able to write about our families, but not write about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is a departure for you. Yeah, I, you know, the, the first book obviously um, had a particular agenda attached to it. And it, it really wasn't, a memoir in in a way uh, and it certainly wasn't my memoir um so a lot of things that i might have been interested in writing about weren't really relevant to the task at hand um and you know in large part the same is true of this book which is not at all a memoir it really has nothing to do with my family however uh, as you and i have discussed over the course of the last year um covid has touched all of us um, it has traumatized a lot of people. It has re-traumatized a lot of people. And for probably obvious reasons, I took it really personally because uh, my uncle is the one who uh, is responsible for, for this mass suffering and the mass death, uh, which was kind of hard to live with. Um, but I also took it personally because I have PTSD. I came into covid already having a uh, complex PTSD, which just means it's something that happened over, it's trauma that occurred over a long period of time. And that's what a lot of us have been feeling for the last year and a half. And I felt that it was important for me to be honest about that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, because it it gave me an in to um, the experiences people might be having that other people wouldn't have, you know, um, I understand it, not just clinically, but personally, and we do mental health and mental illness really badly in this country. You know, we treat mental health, like it's a luxury and mental illness, like it's some still like some kind of moral failing and there's still stigma attached. And that is, that gets in the way of our ability to heal. So I felt, you know, if I can be straight with people about my own experiences and that helps normalize the experience for some people, then I'm happy to do that because we are all suffering so much, you know? I mean, I, I know you and I have bonded about this before, but I'm sober since I was 19. So, and I love to talk about it because I feel like talking about being sober is a way to help other people and I didn't know that people could get sober until I saw you know I mean it, it would have helped me a lot to know that there were so people who got sober at 19 and stayed sober so I agree I think it's really wonderful when you can share your experience to help other people um talk to me though about the put did you go to cot it's not cottonwood right it is yeah. I was trying I don't to think I, I don't say that in the book no but I was like, you know, one of the great things about being a sober is, you know, I'm trying to guess the rehab. I was like, <laughs> mixed with AA people, you know, it has to be. Um, but, and, but so did you, did, did the program work? Did you feel like the program worked? 
You know, I wasn't there long enough. Um, I went, I I went into treatment two different times for various reasons. Uh, So the first time around, I was there for three weeks and it it should have been three months probably. (laughs) Um, But I had to go back to New York. uh, And then after about a month or so, I was unraveling again and knew I needed to put the brakes on it. So I went back uh, to Tucson and it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Unfortunately, it's inordinately expensive and most it's out of the reach of most people, which is why our government needs to do better (laughs) funding uh, treatments for people's mental health issues. But I broke my foot <laughs> like three days before I came home. Right. So my list of things that were was going to help keep me contained and motivated right. uh, got thrown out the window because I wasn't going to be hobbling into Manhattan on crutches, uh, you know, to help Syrian refugees or whatever it was um, I was planning on doing. So that was that kind of um, got in the way of my healing uh but on the other hand if i hadn't broken my foot i would never have i'm pretty sure i would not have cooperated with the new york times yeah uh and i wouldn't have written the book and we wouldn't be having this conversation so let should we talk more about the book or should we talk about the new york times um we're gonna go we're gonna do both but yeah i mean the new york times since we we've set up the segue, let's go there because it's relevant uh, yeah. because they're getting sued by Donald too right. for a hundred million dollars, uh, which is, is that the only amount he knows? I think it, it maybe it's just all, all he has. I don't know. <laughs> but he's like, there are other amounts of money. <laughs> yeah. It's you think he'd go bigger. Right. Or just, I mean, does it need to be even like, I, I don't. Okay. So yes. Continue though. Yes. Um, so the, this lawsuit besides being completely frivolous and you could say it's probably retaliatory too, because I'm suing him. Um, and in fact, the lawsuit is in the same County. Um, so for various reasons and the, I don't know if it's a bad thing. I mean, I guess it's a good thing, but it just underscores like how shoddy he is, you know, it's the worst reasoned, most poorly written thing that you, you could be subjected to. And it's so dramatic and silly and unserious that it just, it's infuriating that people like him are allowed to game the system and, use resources that could be used for much more important things um, simply as a way to avoid and evade responsibility. You know, this is just a stalling tactic, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, well, some of the reporting I read said that it accused you of stealing documents that had actually been given to you. I, and smuggling them. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not Cuban cigars. It's, <laughs> It's documents that, yes, were given to me in discovery uh, during yet another lawsuit 20 years ago, because as I recently said, that's how my family communicates. We sue each other. Lawsuits Um, are your love language. 
in their yeah, family. It is. They're, That's what happens family. when money is the only currency. So That's to speak. Right. But you know, I mean, there are fam I mean, a lot of these New York families have uh they have older patriarchs who try to screw the younger kids out of stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. I've had cousins where this, you know, things mm -hmm. like this and that. It's not so unusual. But the I think the the frequency of the Trump families, you know, is pro is probably, you know, also the presidency. I'm sorry. Also, him being president. <sighs> yeah, that's uh, that still gives me the chills. I mean, do I think so? I so I want to just go back, circle back for a second on the tax stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, it strikes me that you really did a huge service and that also by suing you, he is actually confirming that all the documents that he said were fake are real. Yes. Yeah. I, again, it, it's amazing how much of their brief is about the success of my book. <laughs> um, the... It's just quite incredible. It just, it quotes my book, you know, um, and it's just doing me a favor, kind of. And it is. It's admitting uh, my my lawyer, the brilliant Robbie Kaplan, summed it up best, basically saying, you know, that in essence, this lawsuit is Donald saying, you know, we need to shut her up because uh, she's revealing the truth about what we did, and we need to keep in place. The document that prevents her from talking about all the crimes we committed you know? right. so, yeah. it is i mean it really is a confirmation that the guy is pretty and, crooked and it's the same thing with the my fraud lawsuit against them which alleges they uh, uh stole quite a large sum of money from me after my dad died when i was 16 and he was 42 yeah. even though they were my trustees at the time um, they don't argue that they didn't commit fraud. They say that there's a statute of limitations that's passed. So right. it's the same kind of thing. I also feel like he's sort of mad that he, the RNC didn't have to buy hundreds of copies of your book. You know, like with Don Jr. Like, I feel like there's <laughs> a residual hostility. Like your book actually became a bestseller and no one had to buy all the copies. Yeah, and it, listen, I, I'm I'm happy people bought it, of course, and I hope it 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 served a purpose and people found it useful. Um, in fact, that is one of the gratifying things. Uh, a lot of people have said that they recognized their own families in it, and it helped them feel validated or whatever. But the fact that uh, my book sold in a day <laughs> more copies than his first book sold in 30 years is pretty cool. Um, now let's talk about this book because, which I'm so pleased with myself for having it. I'm just going to put it up here all the time. Um, but it does, it's really an interesting book because you talk about yourself and then you go into the history of America. You yeah. Know, it, go on. It takes a turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, because when, it, when I started thinking about the next book, uh, in fact, you and I spoke about this at the time. It was last October, I think. It was much more about the concerns we were going to be facing when we started emerging from COVID, if we ever did. You know, right. I, I really believe that once we started um, 
coming out of our apartments and houses, we were all going to be confronted with um, things that we hadn't been able to confront because as I say, you can't deal with your trauma while you're being traumatized. And, you know, whether it's PTSD or depression, anxiety, substance abuse disorders, serious mental uh, psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, um, stress disorder, all that stuff. And, And then I realized that can't really write about that in an effective way. One, because it was a big question mark. And two, um, it's, that's a policy thing. You know, it, that needs to be dealt with uh, through policy. So we were then at this incredible point of crisis. We were in the second wave of COVID. We had this serious economic crisis ongoing and a deep political crisis. We were a month away from an election that was uncertain. And the fact that we, there was uncertainty was mind blowing to me. That at that point, uh, 250,000 Americans were dead because of Donald. And yet there was a, a better than 40% chance that he might get four more years in the Oval Office. Um, so I thought it was just extraordinary to me that this country got to this place in what seemed like a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. How, how did this happen? And I realized that just as with trauma um, in general and PTSD in particular, in order to get through it, because you you can't cure PTSD, Mm -hmm. but you can learn how to manage it. In order to get to that point, you need to face not just what happened to you, but the feelings you felt while it was happening. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know, trauma gets suspended in time because it never gets processed and the, the feeling gets split off from it. Um, and you can't get past it. It will continue to affect you on a day-to-day basis unless you go back and you do that hard work. And it's a terrible thing to ask somebody to do quite honestly. And I realized we need to do that as a country yeah. Yeah. because one, we're, we're in this amazing amount of trauma now, but we always have been, and it's never been addressed. And the uh, white people who committed the trauma or sorry, committed the atrocities that led to the trauma have never um, acknowledged their role, let alone atone for it. And I really said that's partially because of two major things. One um, is the fact that uh, white supremacy always has been and continues to be operative in America. Mm-hmm. And two, um, we never hold powerful white men accountable for anything. Right. And I think that those two things lead us directly to Donald John Trump. It is incredible to me that so many people are like, and Trump is going to go to jail, and you're going to see. And and meanwhile, I see no imminent jailing. No. Right? I mean, do you, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's a terrible indictment of where we are uh, because it suggests that we haven't evolved at all. And, and if you consider that Robert E. Lee who was the greatest traitor to this country. Mm -hmm. He owned and tortured other human beings. 
And he was directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, not only did he not get imprisoned, uh, he went on to lead a very successful life as a university president. And when he died, the university was named after him, Washington and Lee University. I think it's still called that. And in 1973 or four, President Gerald Ford pardoned him. Yeah. So why would we expect a powerful white man who has committed crimes with impunity and, and, and committed other transgressions with impunity for his entire life right. and been allowed to fail upwards so spectacularly, why would we expect that there would be justice? And that is a very sad commentary on not just where we are, but where we might be headed. One of my, yeah, I mean, it seems, it seems likely. And, you know, of course, we're talking about Robert E. Lee, who is one of Trump's favorite generals, and who I recently learned via whatever Trump's little message uh, app, or whatever it is, where he publishes those sort of paragraphs, where he talks about was actually a very good general, though, of course, he wasn't. But no, uh, I mean, And he would have kicked ass in Afghanistan, apparently. The guy is like, but uh, a friend of mine called me yesterday and was like, Trump is going to win. Trump is going to run again and he's going to win. What do you think? I mean, it's like the anxiety that all of us have, even though we're three years away. I think it depends on a a few things. Um, I'm much less sanguine about it than I was in uh, November, December of last year, because at the time... There was no way to know um, how far, although I suppose I should have. I swear I feel like uh, Charlie Brown in the football far too often because I'm a Democrat. (laughs) Um, But there was no way to know how far they were going to take it uh, in terms of allowing him to spread the big lie that the election was stolen from him to the extent that they were going to repeat the big lie uh, and fail to... um, allow President Biden, uh, President-elect Biden's team to get access uh, to very vital materials. Because remember, thousands of people were still dying every day from COVID. And uh, Donald decided that it wasn't of interest to him anymore, to the extent that it ever was. And there was no way to know that there was going to be an insurrection incited by Donald (laughs) against his own government. So I felt at the time that he would go the way of Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush and become irrelevant and his crushing defeat, because look, he didn't lose as badly as he should have. Right. And it it's demoralizing that 12 million more people voted for him in 2020 than did in 2016. However, he did lose by 8 million votes. Right. That and is- Probably more humiliating than that is he couldn't blame the Republicans because they outperformed expectation and did much better uh, than they should have. So he can't blame them for his loss because they did pretty well. Uh, So I figured he was never going to get over that narcissistic injury because, as you know, there's nothing worse than losing in my family. You may as well just jump off a cliff. Now, I'm not so sure because as continues to happen and it never ceases to amaze me everything seems to be breaking his way it's crazy yeah it is i mean i do think like 
I feel like with Republicans, they kidnap themselves and hold themselves hostage. Like they had a moment to get rid of Trump. They could have done it and they decided like, oh no, don't want to alienate the base. Oh no, what will, you know, like don't want to. And now, I mean, Trump is finding, is trying to find a challenger to go after McConnell, which I mean, is really fun for me as a Democrat, but like they, they should have known this guy was not, you know, he's not there for Republican. I mean, whatever Republican policies are anymore, I guess, tax cuts for rich people and racism. I mean, I guess he is there for the race. Okay. All right. No, never mind. He is there for the Republican values because those are the new Republican (laughs) values. But like, right. But I mean, it strikes me that he has the party has sort of let Trump transform them. Honestly, I don't think he transformed them. I think he just revealed them. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that um, they had they didn't just have one opportunity to take an off ramp away from him. They had dozens of such opportunities starting in 2015. Um, and I think part of it is that starting with say the Tea Party, for example, the Republican, you know, that motivated the base and the Republicans felt like, hey, these um, reckless, crazy people on the far right are are helpful for us. So we're going to let that monster roam free, but we'll be able to control it down the road. But then the Tea Party basically took over (laughs) the Republican Party um, and kind of that you know they, they have uh, devolved to this point um, because if they weren't like this all along, they wouldn't have allowed Donald to remain in in the primary, right. let alone run in the general, right? So, or they certainly would have um, gotten rid of him after the first uh, impeachment. You know, they would have convicted him in the Senate, right? Uh, so, time after time. They decided to stick with him. And I don't think it's that it's because they're afraid of the base. I think it's because he represents exactly what they believe in to the extent that they believe in anything. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party, elected Republicans are the Republican base. A hundred percent of elected Republicans at every level of government at this point represents that 25 percent. Right. No, I mean, you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, that's... (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to. But I mean, that's a great example of someone who is completely batshit, but from a very wealthy family. I mean, that's a joke. She's from a wealthy family. She parachuted into her district, right, because she saw it was winnable. And then she pretended to be folksy, like a sort of page out of the George W. Bush playbook. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a really what you're talking about. I mean, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about Trump, it, it does the same thing, right? He pretends yeah. to be folksy, even though he went to an Ivy League college and da 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 da, da. And, um, and W did the same thing too, though W was more, I think, was he more sophisticated than Donald? I don't think so. I mean, uh, close. Uh, I ton. mean, he surrounded himself with more sophisticated people, that's for sure. Yes, but, he, he, I, but probably a lot of them are, were equally as evil. Yes, <laughs> that's entirely important, true. Important to get to. Um, do you, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it strikes me that the a lot of the history you talk about in this book is not like there does seem to be a civics education problem mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, and not only that, I think there there always has been because we we've taught civics in the past, and it's been a long time since we have, as if it's sort of unrelated to our lives. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one class, junior year in high school or something. We need to start teaching civics again, but we also need to make it relevant to kids' lives. And we need to teach it every year that they're in school from first grade on so that they understand why it's important to know how our government works and why does that matter to their day-to-day lives and why they should be interested and stay up to date on what's going on in politics and around the world. Um, The other thing we need to do is teach critical thinking. And I think uh, maybe even more importantly, at this point, we need to teach media literacy. <laughs> that seems like a really important thing. Uh, the other thing, yeah, media literacy is like that. That I mean, again, the problem with where we have this conservative media that is not bound by any 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 kind of relationship to the truth whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And we have a Congress that can't figure out how to regulate the internet, nor do they necessarily want to. I mean, right. you watch those congressional Facebook hearings and you think to yourself, like, these people are not going to be able to create regulations. Um, but I do think it is, you know, we are, It's. it feels very hopeless sometimes to me. Um, do you find that or? Yeah, uh, I do. Um, and that's hard to say. Because it, this might surprise some people, but I, I'm, well, I used to be anyway, a really quite optimistic person, yeah. which doesn't make any sense considering the family I come from. But, you know, we, we all have our idiosyncrasies. Um, but I try not to go there because we did snatch democracy from the jaws of autocracy yeah. on November 7th. We did that. that. That is a rarity in human history. Um, and I think if Donald did anything, and of course he didn't do it on purpose because he doesn't know anything, he, he showed us just how fragile our institutions are. Yeah. Um, and we now have an opportunity if the Democrats decide that they care about democracy more than they care about, um, the filibuster or whatever they're doing, uh, we have an opportunity to not, not just to shore up our institutions, but reimagine them, uh, which really does need to happen. Because one of the things I write about is how counterintuitively, one of the most anti-democratic institutions in this country's history has been the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. So we need to do something about that. And we can. We can add four seats tomorrow. Yeah. Um, we need to make sure that um, the, because this is the weird thing, the institutions that were designed to protect us from people like Donald led to him. And then he further weakened them. You know, the State Department, it's going to take a generation to repair the damage he did to the State Department. Can you believe that your uncle was allowed to appoint three Trumpy Supreme Court justices? I mean... And I have to tell you, with Amy Coney Barrett, like, I remember talking to someone 
uh, who's in, from Trump world and he was saying he's saving Amy Comey Barrett for when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. And I thought like, That's I, I thought, that was the worst thing I'd ever heard. And it was actually true. And I mean, it's just so horrific. I mean, I feel like those three justices, you know, Kavanaugh, who was had all these allegations and then, you know, he was gonna he was gonna get borked and he would have had he not screamed at everyone and then Trump had decided that he loved him. I mean, it was like it was like watching a horror movie. Yeah, or really, really bad reality reality television, you know, yeah. uh, which is kind of the same thing. Um, it it's unspeakable that because people are so bought so attached to the way things have always been, that they are unwilling to take a step back and realize that this system as it currently exists is rigged against democracy. Mm -hmm. And we cannot survive if we don't meet that challenge and do something about it, right? I mean, the fact that uh, the Supreme Court now, six out of the nine justices represent about 30% of the population. Yeah. and are handing down decisions that 70% of us are horrified by um, should tell us something. Yeah. The problem, of course, is that the, the system is rigged in favor of Republicans, so they're not going to do anything about it, um, which means we need to play hardball. And that's something, one, I think Democrats are terrible, terrible at, uh, which is why, you know, Biden has to stop being an institutionalist to the right. extent that he can he needs to listen to other people and he and Schumer need to do everything in their power either to get Manchin and cinema on board or uh, Biden needs to start doing things without the Senate. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that's right. And I think that the idea of Democrats not being the good guy, you know, I mean, it, it strikes me that there's such an innate feeling Democrats feel like, I mean, I have, you know, on the podcast, I have senators and Congress people on all the time. And they say things like, well, if we legislate well, then people will know. And I mean, the American Rescue Act was this huge success. And so Republicans took credit for it. Even I though mean, they voted against it to a right, person. They all exactly. voted against it. And then you even see, saw people like Madison, Madison Cawthorn, like saying, you know, we did this for you. And it's like, nobody. Um, so no, it's really striking to me. It is. And then to have on the left, uh, to the extent that they actually are on the left, saying that we need to uh, play by the old rule book, which by the way, the Republicans burned to ashes. And it doesn't exist anymore. But they're, they're so dedicated to playing by that rule book that is no longer with us. Uh, in order to save democracy, right, that they're willing to allow us to slide into a theocratic apartheid state um, because that's what's happening. It's a really weird way to go about saving democracy. Um, and another weird way to go about saving democracy is to pretend you can make common cause with a party that is fascist at this point. Well, there are, I mean, like, I agree, but even if you were to say, oh, that's hyperbole, they are anti-democracy. They are anti-voting, which is, if you are that, then you are fascist, right? Like, there are no, you know, A plus B equals C. Plus so violence. I, right, plus violence, plus, 
I mean, the way that Republicans have like decided that the insurrection was like tourism and something that people do normally is pretty wacky stuff. But I mean, even just like the way Republicans have had have encouraged their own supporters not to take the vaccine. That's where it gets very strange to me. Um, I think I think about that a lot because it's one thing not to care about other people. I think that's completely on brand for a lot of Republicans. Um, it's another thing entirely to be willing to put yourself, your children, people you love at risk of dying from a totally preventable uh, virus. And I was actually speaking to Ruth Bengiat a while ago uh, about that very issue. And she made a really good point uh, that gun culture uh, which has just taken over uh, the Republican Party, has basically over time diminished the value of human life to be. Right. Uh, when, when clinging to a piece of metal is more important to you than the lives of five and six-year-olds, then, you know, why do you care if uh, five and six-year-olds wear masks or social distance or quarantine when exposed to a virus? Yeah, and it, it it's still mind blowing, but I that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and it's funny because you do see all. I mean, the future of the Republican Party, if it's not Trump, is Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis has been you know killing off people, his supporters, pretty yeah. at a pretty good clip now. And I mean, and also, I mean, the thing that kills me as someone who used to remember Republicans being pro-business, that was a long, long time ago, is that he's like suing the cruise lines because they want to use vaccine passports and he doesn't want them to. I mean, there is this real auto, you know, autocratic streak in the party that has really become sort of the mainstay. Yeah, and what, what's really infuriating is that for people like DeSantis and Tucker Carlson, it's all performative. Right. They're posturing. They're vaccinated. You know, their children are vaccinated. Well, the joke is when people ask Tucker Carlson if he's vaccinated, he asks them some very personal and often uh, inappropriate question in the hope that then. Yeah, I've seen that with journal twice with journalists. He's said they've said, are you vaccinated? And then he asks, you know, do you have relations with your wife or something? that's very <laughs> Right. In a way, I mean. The problem with Tucker Carlson is he's very smart. I mean, the, the you know, he's also just going to, we're all going to die because of him. But mm -hmm. uh, so I think that he does this very, you know, good, he's good at intimidating people. Uh, but it is, no, I mean, I, Fox News, I mean, I don't know if these people are vaccinated, but I do know that Fox News has a 90% vaccination rate and a vaccine passport system, which makes me think, that a lot of these people may be vaccinated. Well, it's company policy. Right. I don't think they have a choice. Exactly. So, um, you know, and as you said, he's smart, right. unfortunately. Right. And so it, it's just, and that's, that's, I think, the disadvantage they have us at. Um, if you don't believe in anything um, and all you want is power, there are no lines you won't cross. Right. And I think that's I also think Republicans and I think this really worked for Trump in in 2015. He was never bound to the truth at all. No, 
at all. So while Hillary would say something that wasn't exciting, Trump would just say, like, I'm going to get you coal jobs. You know, I'm going to make coal great again. Right. I'm going to he had no but he had no. I mean, even Mitch McConnell is not going to get up there and say, like, we're going to make coal great again because he's he knows that coal is dead. Mm-hmm. But uh, Trump had none of that relationship with the truth at all. Yeah. And he's really good. I mean, unfortunately, I hate giving him credit for anything, but he's quite good at reading uh, a room. And we saw this recently at his um, mass death event in Alabama. Right. Uh, He told everybody to get vaccinated and then they booed him and he turned on a dime and we'll never say that again. Yeah. Uh, so in real time, he, he can make those shifts, um, which is weird because one could call that admitting you were wrong and then correcting yourself. So the fact that he couldn't do that with COVID is pretty depressing, but he's really good at doing it to keep people liking it. Yeah. Um, all right. I think we should go to Michelle and let Michelle ask some of the questions from the the internet chat so cool thank you both yes we've got a lively discussion and plenty of questions for you mary the first one is the the level of psychological reconstruction we need to do as people is overwhelming how do we appeal to others when we're all so full of resistance what is the sweet spot to trigger engagement Well, you know, it's going to be different for everybody. Uh, Sometimes you have to meet people where they are. uh, And sometimes that means just giving them room to get there on their own, right? You can't force people. I used to work in a clinic that specialized in substance abuse disorders. And a lot of the patients there were mandated by court to go to treatment. doesn't work. If you're resisting if you're that resistant, then it, you cannot force it on somebody, you know? Um, so part of it too, I mean, I'd say the first thing we need to do is we need to focus on ourselves. Uh, you know, you, you can't give people, uh, that much if your own resources are depleted. And I think that's kind of where we all are right now. So, um, as hard as it is to, believe that we still are still here 18 months later, we need to remember that we are all still suffering greatly. And even if not, like I I live in New York, my lives in New York, it's so much better now. A lot of people are vaccinated, you know, we're still wearing masks indoors and all that stuff. So um, I feel relatively safe there, but we're not totally out of the woods. And again, even though Luckily, so far, it, it hasn't been anybody close to me, but 2,000 Americans are dying every day still for no reason. Um, so the very first thing we need to do is, is assess where we are, get help if we need it, but also remember that you know we're all still a little bit isolated and we're all still um, in the process of emerging from what has been very traumatic and continues to be. So we need to stay connected. Um, we need community which is very hard to do when you, we have been so isolated for so long. And we need to take steps every day to make sure um, that we are giving ourselves what we need or asking for 
things that we can't do for ourselves, you know? So um, resistance is a tough, a tough thing to deal with, especially when the, the way I used to think about it is it, it's as if we were at war and all of us went to war at the same time. We all served in some capacity. Some of us had desk jobs. Some of us were on the front lines and everything in between. And we all came back at the same time. So we need to understand that, that we are all going through it. And just like, I do this all the time with people. If, if I'm annoyed with them or upset with them, I just take a step back and I say, well, you know what? It's COVID. It's very likely COVID. And so we need to be forgiving to ourselves. We need to be forgiving to other people and um, hope that when people are ready to seek help or, you know, your counsel, that they will ask and that we will be able to be there for them and for ourselves. What are your thoughts regarding being named in a suit by Donald Trump when it comes to the discovery phase where he would be exposed to details of his businesses, business practices, all while under oath. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have thought that one through, <laughs> does he? Um, I know, I'm thinking of sending him flowers, actually. I might not because, you know, I'm saving all of my money for when I have to pay him that $100 million. But uh, I listen, it, I think it's extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily unlikely there will be a discovery phase here. Um because he never gets to that point, you know? Um, however, that might be different uh, with my lawsuit against them because I'm not going to drop it <laughs> and I will see it through. Uh, so I think that's what he needs to be more worried about. And I, again, I think that's one of the reasons this, his lawsuit against me happened because I, at least I'd like to think I've got him freaked out a little bit. Mary, was your complex PTSD related to dealing with your father and his history with a family? Was it cathartic for you? Thank you for admitting it. Uh, no, it had not. It had nothing to do with my dad or his family, although they didn't help. <laughs> Let's put it that way. They sort of certainly compounded <laughs> the trauma. Um, but listen, I anybody who's grown up with an alcoholic parent understands that that does. Um, that does put a burden on any child uh, who has to deal with that. And I, especially when that person's family is so cruel. Um, so no, dad had nothing to do with it. However, um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he had some form of PTSD himself, uh, given the unspeakable cruelty he was subjected to like practically his entire life. If we're traumatized now, what do you think would happen if Trump gets elected again in 2024? What do you think are the chances of him getting elected in 2024? Um, I honestly think we need to work. I will answer the question, but I think right now we need to be very concerned about what happens in 2022. Because if the Republicans win back the House or gain more seats in the Senate, um, I think it at that point it's over. Um, I, I, I hate saying that, but I believe it's true. So we need to focus on that. If, if we're lucky and Democrats increase their margins, um, pr 
preferably in the Senate, um, then yeah, then 2024 becomes the next most important election of our lifetime. I think, as I was saying to Molly earlier, uh, I believed immediately after the election that he wouldn't run again because he'd been so humiliated. And then the Republicans proved themselves to be even more craven than I gave them credit for and have enabled him to retain power, to um, remain influential and are also uh, behind the scenes. uh, God knows what's happening, but out in the open, they are in every state uh, trying to enact voter suppression laws aimed squarely at preventing um, Democratic-leaning voters from voting. So if they can um, rig the system in only three states against us and therefore make it impossible for Democrats to win statewide elections in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, for example, then Donald would run because he wouldn't be able to lose. And he needs the powers and protections of the Oval Office. He needs them and he knows he needs them. So we need to hope for the first time in this country's history that a powerful white man who committed egregious crimes against his country and against the people of his country is held accountable. Whether he he needs to go to prison, but not sure that's going to happen. He needs to be uh, impoverished. He needs to be kept from running for office again. You know, there is there the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment makes it impossible for insurrectionists to run for public office. That needs to be invoked. Um, so, and there's also the question of his health. He's not a young, he's, he's an old 74, and he's in terrible shape. So, um, you know, I, there's, and he's very mental he has serious mental illness uh which is untreated what's so, your diagnosis of him i'm sorry what's your diagnosis of him um i don't diagnose him because i kind of technically i can't but we just need to look at his behavior to know that um you know whether it's it's technically this or not he he's an incredibly antisocial person rules don't apply to him he lies he's a a prolific liar. Uh, he lies with without compunction. Sorry, with compunction. I don't remember. Anyway, he lies a lot and has no no qualms about doing so. And he's cruel. He has no empathy. And as I've been saying for a while, uh, and I know Molly, you have too. Um, he will if he feels threatened, and we're seeing how this is playing out. He will do anything in his power to take all of us down with him. So whether he's a sociopath or a malignant narcissist or something else, um, we are at still unbelievably at the mercy of a person who literally doesn't care if we live or die unless we support him. We have a question from the audience. Do you think that democracy will still be here in 20 years? Uh, That depends entirely on what happens uh, between now and 2024. It really does. We either get through 2024 
uh, with uh, democracy shaken, <laughs> weakened, but intact to the extent that it ever has been. And we do the work to uh, shore it up in ways that it really has always needed to be, you know, expanding the franchise to everybody who's eligible to vote. Um, and failing that, uh, no, the democracy won't be here in 20 years. And I'm not sure what would be because um, for the United States to become uh, an autocracy would be devastating to the entire planet. And this is a question that is pretty popular in the YouTube chat, but it was also one of my questions. And that is, uh, will you ever consider running for public office? Um, I'm going to say something really political right now. Uh, I have no plans <laughs> to run. Um, honestly, I I don't know simply because I, I'd never thought about it. Um, and so when I'm asked that question, I can't, I can't say no, because I've never really given it that much thought. Uh, what I will say, however, first of all, I live in New York. So what good, it, good, what good would it do? Um, there, there are plenty of people uh, with my politics writing for things who have more experience than I have. Um, but for now, I, like, I really like what I'm doing. Um, I have a lot of opportunities to do things that I would never have been able to do before. And I also think that at the, the moment I'm more effective on the outside. Um, you know, I don't, I never have to pull punches. Um, I, I'm not beholden to anybody. And I mean, obviously any, any decent person with integrity, who's a politician shouldn't do those things either. Um, but, you know, it's also, it, it wouldn't really leave me a room to do much else if I were um, in politics. So um, yeah, I, I like, I like being on the outside. Honestly, the new Woodward book reveals that Vice President Mike Pence was talked out of going along with Donald Trump's coup by none other than Dan Quayle. Did Dan <laughs> Quayle save democracy? No, <laughs> no, but you know, credit for standing up and saying because all he did was tell Mike Pence the truth truth about the situation he was in. There was nothing he could do. Um, and I think, I'm, I'm guessing Pence also spoke to other people because he was probably trying to find somebody who would tell him what he wanted to hear, which is, yeah, sure, you can overturn the results of the election. Um, but I, I think it's hysterical that it's Dan Quayle. Um, I hope his spelling has gotten better since uh, last we heard from him. But uh, no, and in fact, I'm still not sure democracy has been saved at all. But anyway. Just a couple more questions before we turn it back to Molly for her final questions. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our future as a country? Yeah, I, I, I can't be pessimistic. Um, we need, as hard as it is, <laughs> We need to hang on to hope. And as I said earlier, we, we did something extraordinary in November. Um, you know, we were well on our way to a very dark place. And we ended up with Joe Biden as our president and Kamala Harris as our vice president. That is not nothing. So um, I, I am hopeful. Also, I think hanging on to hope allows us to stay connected and energized. Like if, if we think it's hopeless, then why bother? You know, we all need to 
we all need to bother. Like we need to vote in such overwhelming numbers in 2022 just for things to be even because the system is so stacked against us with gerrymandering and voter suppression and the electoral college, et cetera. So, um, you know, there's no reason to give up yet. There's not. So I know it's hard, especially because of COVID, but, you know, we need to hang in there and realize, remind yourselves every day, there are so many more of us than there are of them. It's a great segue to the last and final question from our audience uh, and our YouTube chat here. Um, Mary, how can we best continue the fight without getting burnt out? Even though that's what you just said. (laughs) I know it's hard, but keep going. Uh, What would you recommend for emotional sustenance in this long protracted battle that we're all in? Um, Well, I said earlier, you know, it's really important to stay connected and realize that we're not alone. I I know that's been very hard been hard for me last year and a half not to feel that uh at times but you know do things like this join other um online communities if if you can or in-person ones if they exist where you are and they're safe um do take care of yourself i i know that sounds basic um but it's hard under these circumstances you know it's hard to eat properly and exercise when there's so much all of this going on around us. Um, but those are really important. I mean, it's not just because you'll you'll feel better physically, but you'll feel better emotionally and psychologically as well. Um, so the other thing I would also say is you don't have to be informed about everything all the time. You know, it's hard to, to just listen to the bad, it's all bad news, right? So if you need to tap out, tap out for a while, refresh, you know, uh, re-energize and understand that, you know, we, we all are going to have each other's backs here and we're not going to do anybody, including ourselves, any good if we burn out. Right. Um, so, and, and there are also things that you can do that don't expose you to the toxicity all the time, you know, do uh, voter registration drives, do stuff like that, you know, Thank you so much. I'll turn it back over to Molly for your final thoughts and questions. We got about five minutes left. Uh, I want to say one last thing I want to add to what you just said, because I think Mm -hmm. it was good, but also run for your school board. Mm. I mean, they, those kids, they are the craziest people in the world are running for your school board. So it's really good. I mean, I don't think it will be the relaxing moment of zen that you need to tap i mean i think mary has a very good point though about like tapping out for mental health you know i'm i i pay a lot of attention to what's going on but i give myself like the summer i took like a week where i just like didn't even know what was happening you know and i was just with my teenagers and and uh and i think that was very relaxing because teenagers are very relaxing as you and i both know it's just very and they're also delightful and they say very nice things to you about what a great parent you are um constantly yeah it's a really good humbling exercise um but i do think that it's a really good point that we have to take care of our mental health it does feel very kind of crushing and scary and and i would also say like uh voter registration is how democrats won georgia voter yeah. registration is like a really big part of this whole thing and 
Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown mm -hmm. from Black Voters Matter, like those two women and, and their and all of the volunteers uh, that they assembled really did do a lot of voter registration. So while voter registration feels like calming because it is not like a terrifying, uh, you know, kind of Jerry Springer show, you know, event, it actually is very useful. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, and it's good to have a sense of agency, right? You're doing yeah. something productive. Yeah, it's really good. I, I want to uh, ask you one last question. If you feel, what, what is the thing that you want people to take away from this book? Um, I think I want people to understand in, in a really deep way that the only way for us to heal, whether it's personally or as a country, is to be honest uh, and to take responsibility where necessary. Um, you know, especially white people take their privilege for granted to the extent that they don't even know it exists mm -hmm. most of the time. And a lot of people don't admit it exists ever. And somehow uh, taking responsibility for things has, has fallen out of fashion. Um, so if we want to get better as, as a country, we, and by we, uh, right now I'm just talking to the majority of white people, um, we need to take responsibility, not, yes, I didn't, you know, I'm not responsible for slavery, no, but I need to be very honest about the fact that I've benefited from a system mm -hmm. that privileges whiteness, yes. right? Um, so if I fail to take responsibility for that, then I'm contributing to the problem. I'm perpetuating the, the evils that have gotten us to this point. So um, there's nothing harder or more uh, productive and useful than looking in the mirror and being honest with yourselves. And that's what we all need to do. Um, Mary, I'm so glad I got to do this and I'm so uh, grateful to call you a friend. I just Thanks. am. So Molly, thank this is awesome. I was so happy you were able to be here with me and Michelle, thank you so much and everybody um, for putting this together. This was, this was awesome. Pick up a copy of your book today, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Thank you to Mary Trump and Molly Jong Fast for this very open conversation. Thank you to all of you for joining us here and the Commonwealth Club of California for providing the platform. To find out more programs, more information about the Commonwealth Club, head to commonwealthclub.org. Enjoy the rest of your evening, your day. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. Stay healthy. We'll see you next time.